Hello, fellow sojourners in this road of life. Welcome to the Wayfarer Podcast. I'm Tom Vanderwell, and I have returned. Where have I been? I wandered into the Lenten wilderness last spring, and I didn't come back. Uh, but I am a wayfarer. I mean, that's the that's the whole nature, isn't it? You know, the wander off and wayfaring stranger. You never know when I'm going to show up. It's kind of like the High Plains Drifter in Sergio Leone Westerns. You know, the man with no name shows up just uh, in the dusty old town or like Gandalf. Uh, you know, Frodo never knew when Gandalf was going to show up uh, at the Hobbit Hole. All of a sudden, he'd be gone for years and suddenly show up or, or like Aslan. You know, you never knew when Aslan was going to show up. Uh, you just heard that Aslan is on the move, but you never knew when he was going to show up. Well, I wish it was all that dramatic and mysterious. But the truth is that life is happening. And on this road of life, you encounter some uh, twists and turns sometimes, and things don't turn out the way that you think they are. So it's just been an incredibly busy time of life. Won't get into the boring details, but uh, new responsibilities uh, for me in my business, intelligentics, where intelligence meets tactics. I've taken over the helm this year as uh, owner and CEO. So that's been an increase of workload. I've been traveling more, both for work and other reasons, more than I typically have. So I've been on the road a lot doing the road warrior thing. And um, then just finding ourselves in the stage of life where uh, parents are aging. You know, they take care of you when you're uh, young And then we get to turn around and take care of them when they're older. So my folks are going through uh, some tough times uh, health-wise. Wendy's grandma, the same thing. So between the two of us, we've just been spending more and more time just caring for them. And that's taken some time. So uh, that's basically it in a nutshell. Just uh, haven't been back to the podcast. But here I am. Uh, I have returned. Thank you, by the way, to Sam, my nephew, and Emma, my niece, who have been bugging me consistently to get back to the podcast and uh, kept telling me how much they missed it. It's, you know, it's been a bit of a self-imposed exile from some things, and that's okay. Sometimes you need to take that break. And speaking of exile, one of the big things that's been happening uh, in the time that I've been away has really been the the whole theme of exile. Uh, I am uh, lead the teaching team among my uh, local gathering of Jesus followers. And this year, the theme of our teaching series is exile. And I know that when we announced that, well, in fact, first of all, when it was announced to me uh, that that was going to be the theme, I thought, what? Um, exile? Really? Um and it kind of threw me for a loop. And then when it was announced to, you know, all the folks among our local gathering, that was kind of the common response. Like, what? What are you talking about? Because it's just not a theme that we think much about because we live in a pretty settled uh, culture and a pretty settled uh, society. And so the, the idea of exile, especially for Midwesterners in Iowa 
in the United States of America, it's just not a theme that resonates with us. But it's an important theme. And the more that we're getting into it, um, learning so much. And it's just really expanding my thoughts in a lot of different ways. Number one, uh, if you want a resource, uh, Exile, The Church in Exile is a book by Lee Beach, L-E-E Beach. Uh, great text. It's kind of one of the foundational texts that we're using from. So if you're a reader, that might be something you want to look into. Um, but one of the things that I'm realizing that I've never known before is that exile, when you think about it, is really a meta-theme uh, throughout the great story from Genesis to Revelation. And I've unpacked this a little bit on some of my messages, but when you think about it, when Adam and Eve had their little uh, episode in the Garden of Eden where they were what? They were at home with God in the garden, living together in harmony with all things. They have their little uh, forbidden fruit episode, and then they get, what, banished from the garden. So now they're, what, exiles. They are exiles from the Garden of Eden, from that relationship and intimacy with God. And what happens at the end of Revelation in chapters 21 and 22? It is that it is the restoration of all things. It's the restoration of humanity and God in intimate relationship back home again. And so really the entire story from Genesis to Revelation is a story of exile. And there are many scholars, in fact, I'm just, uh, thanks to my nephew Sam for recommending this text, um, Conversations with N.T. Wright about exile, a great book that I'm wading into. And there are some scholars that really have understood that exile is the lens through which uh, the great story should really be seen because it's, uh, again, it's the meta theme. Now think about it also. Almost every major character in God's great story had a period of exile. Abram, who later became Abraham. Abram, I want you to leave your family, leave your country, which at that point in time in the ancient cultures, you didn't leave, you didn't wander, you didn't travel. Travel is something that's really common to us today. We are a global community because travel has made it so easy. But in those days, uh, the paradigm was you didn't leave home. You stayed right there. And so for God to call Abram away from home. And then he says, I want, I want you to leave your home and I'm going to, I'm going to take you to a country that I will show you, a land that I'll show you. And he doesn't even know where he's going. That's exile because at its very definition, exile means to be away from home. And so Abram leaves, he's in exile. And that is really the whole story of Abram and Abraham, but it doesn't end there. Uh, Abram's then a progeny, Jacob. So Jacob deceives his brother Esau and what goes into exile with his uncle Laban, where he meets, uh, his wife. And then Jacob's youngest son, Joseph, who uh, Joseph in the amazing technicolor dream quote, maybe you don't know the story of Joseph, but if you've seen the Broadway musical, you got the gist. Joseph is sold into slavery by his own brothers. He ends up in Egypt. What? He's in exile. 
And then at the end of the story, when the famine comes, uh, Jacob and all of his sons come to Egypt looking for some help because there's no food at home. And Joseph is there and he's been raised to a place of prominence. So he takes his family back in. He's able to provide for them in the famine. And then guess what? The people, the, the, the tribes of Jacob, the tribes of Israel are in Egypt and that's when they become enslaved. And now they're in exile in Egypt. So God raises up who? Moses. Moses actually had two exiles. The first one when he's a little baby and they put him in a basket and he leaves home because his mom thinks that he's going to be killed because he's a Hebrew baby. So his entire life is lived in exile being raised as an Egyptian. Then when it becomes uh, clear that he is a Hebrew and it's discovered, he actually murders uh, an Egyptian, he goes into another exile in the land of Midian, uh, where he meets his wife. Fascinating enough. So we've got Moses. Then David, King David. What most people don't realize is that David was anointed as God's anointed king when he was a young man. Like, he doesn't become king until, uh, until he's 30 years old. Where was he? He was in exile. King Saul wanted his head, knew that he was God's anointed, so he flees into the wilderness. He lives in a cave. He gathers this ragtag band of mercenaries and lives for years in exile before ultimately God fulfills uh, the anointing of him becoming king. Prophet Elijah is lives in exile fleeing from King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Daniel, Esther, Ezekiel, these are all people who live through the Babylonian exile. King Nebuchadnezzar comes in, destroys Jerusalem, destroys God's temple, the one that Solomon built, and he takes uh, the best of the best. It takes all these uh, Hebrews from Jerusalem into exile, takes them back to Babylon. And there for 70 years, the Hebrews lived in exile in Babylon, and then returned, rebuilt the temple, and rebuilt Jerusalem. That's the book of Nehemiah. Then we go into the New Testament. Jesus lived in exile. Do you remember the story? Uh, when he's a baby, and the angel comes to say, Joseph, hey, uh, Herod wants uh, to kill your baby. So flee with your wife to where? Egypt. And he comes back. So Jesus lives in exile as a little boy. Um, it, it, the theme just goes on. Even in the, the New Testament, in the book of Acts, there's a persecution. And so what happens? All of the believers flee Jerusalem and they flee to the north. So like when Peter writes his books, First uh, Peter, he's writing to the believers who are living in exile. They, f- they flee the Roman persecution in Jerusalem. They're living throughout the provinces, the Roman provinces, and living in exile. So I'm belaboring this, but do you see what I'm saying? This is a consistent theme. What's fascinating to think about is what happens in in around 300 AD. And I, I touched on this in one of my previous podcasts, but I think it's so important to realize this. For the first 300 years, the Jesus movement was really organic. 
there was no, uh, it, w- it was just kind of a loose collection. There were, there, there was an organizational structure that kind of took hold. And yet there, there were believers, you know, a million believers. And some scholars say that they were worshiping in 40 some thousand church uh, home churches around the Western world. So this wasn't like there were church buildings. There wasn't like some sort of church organization. It was a loose, organic collection of groups of believers that would gather in people's houses. And this is the way it was for like 300 years. And then uh, 312, Emperor the Roman Emperor Constantine decides that Christianity is going to become the basically the state religion of the Roman Empire. He becomes a believer, and now all of a sudden, overnight, Christianity becomes the most powerful religion and the most powerful political force in the Western world. That is a huge paradigm shift. That The consequences of that are incredible. So now you've got... This Jesus movement that had been built upon taking care of the poor, trying to deal with social injustices, uh, both female and male and the Jews versus the Greeks and uh, taking care of people in poverty that had been marginalized and had nowhere to go, taking care of lepers uh, in leper colonies. Christian, the Christian um, movement was built on people who had a heart to follow Jesus, to love others, and to do things differently than they've ever been done before. Then overnight, God's kingdom became an empire, an earthly empire. The organism became an organization. The incarnation, where where God in us became an institution. Christianity became Christendom because now all of a sudden it became inseparable from the Roman Empire itself. And pastors, <laughs> leaders within the church now found themselves also taking responsibilities like a governor or a judge of the Roman Empire. All of a sudden they had political influence. And now becoming a leader in the church had all sorts of earthly political power. And from that point on, for 1,700 years, Christendom, Christian thought, the the church institution largely framed life in all of the Western world. 1,700 years. Now, let me back up. In one of my previous podcasts, I kind of talked about this paradigm of the four levels. Uh, thinking about life on four levels. Level one is at the core. It's my personal relationship with Christ. Uh, Level two is my relationship and community with others, my circles of immediate influence, the people that I touch and interact with all the time. Level three is that um, the kingdom of this world, if you will, the dominion of this world. It's the institutions of this world. Level three is the world of politics, commerce, uh, business, corporations, uh, 
institutions, whether that be education or religion, whatever, it's the, that's the level three uh, world. And then level four is the cosmic, eternal realm where Christ uh, is on his throne, where he exists and where we exist, the Bible says, in him right now in eternity. It, so when Christ came, he came to bring level four eternal kingdom of God perspective down to all of the three levels on this earthly life and existence in myself, in my relationships, in how I relate to the world on level three. But what happened was when the kingdom became the empire, when Constantine made Christianity now the institution of Christianity, the political institution of Christianity, everything changed. Until then, it was a bunch of people trying to do things the way Jesus did them, trying to love people, trying to do things in an organic, person-to-person, I'm-going-to-love-you kind of paradigm. I'm going to try and take this love uh, in, in the way Jesus had it uh, and, and showed it to us and taught it to us, and I'm going to show love to other people. And through that love, people are going to go, man, I want what you got. And that's how the church grew. Now, in Christendom, we begin ruling over people with the same level three paradigms that this world always uses. All of a sudden, we have to have power. We want power over people. We need to control the masses. We want to, uh, to rule on this earth. And that's when things started happening. Like, well... Political leaders became Christians to be appointed to political power, but was also now part of the institutional church. And you had nepotism, and you had uh, people conniving, and all of a sudden now you had bishops uh, and all these stories of history doing terrible things because that really wasn't about uh, Christ wasn't the ruler of their heart on level one. They didn't care about loving other people on level two. They were all about getting as much earthly power as they could on level three. And the Holy Roman Empire was where that power was. Do you see the split in that and what happened? So now what has happened in just a generation is... We're now living in a time where scholars say this is the post-Christian world. For 1,700 years, Christianity framed uh, the Western thought and institutions. Now, all of a sudden, we're moving away from that. Uh, There was just some research this week that came out by the Pew Research Center saying that the number of people in America who say they identify with Christianity has rapidly declined in just a few years. And we're now we've got a generation of people, the majority of which know very little about Christianity, know very little about Jesus. They didn't go to church because it wasn't the social paradigm. They really have heard very little except for maybe what's been said in the press or in the media. 
they don't have any kind of frame of reference. And now we've even got politics we've got, and in academia we've got people who are pushing the notion that, that Christianity has been part of the problem for 1,700 years and want to paint all that Christianity has stood for, that, that Christianity has been the problem. Uh, Christianity has given, the, uh, given us the patriarchy and has done all sorts of things. And I warrant that the institution of Christendom have done a lot of uh, nasty things through the years. There's no question about that. That's a historical record. Now we're at a time where people want to kind of push that away and say, that was all bad. Uh, we're moving on. We're revolutionizing uh, thought. We're pushing into a new world uh, beyond Christianity. Uh, that was the old, here comes the new. Scholars are saying, yeah, Christianity no longer holds sway. We're in exile. Yeah, so we're living in some fascinating times. Uh, a couple thoughts on this. Number one, Tom Holland uh, is a British historian, and he was interviewed in the Wall Street Journal this last uh, Saturday. He had some fascinating things uh, to say as he's been looking at all this. One of the, the things that he is noticing is, as a historian is that even some of the uh, what would be painted as liberal initiatives, like uh, even in feminism and in, let's think about like the Me Too movement, uh, many of which would, again, paint Christendom and Christianity as bad, and yet the very roots of feminism is in Jesus. Jesus uh, at a time where women were treated as property and as cattle, where Jewish men were not to even uh, socialize in public with uh, women, and women were treated as, uh, you know, on the same level as the family dog. Jesus changed that. Jesus spoke to the woman at the well and freaked his disciples out. Jesus welcomed Mary Magdalene uh, in a public uh, setting with, with religious people to, to weep over his feet and to dry them with her hair. And this, everyone was taken aback. It was terrible. He was the paradigm shifter. Jesus' ministry was funded by and large by wealthy women because they saw something in what he was doing. And the early church at the, uh, the love feast, when they would get together and gather, they would all sit together at the same table, men and women. Christianity changed that paradigm. And then what happened, that was, that was part of the thing, is, is Jesus and the early Christian movement gave empowerment to women and said there is no difference between male and female. That's what Paul said. No difference between Jew and Greek. The very root of the idea of, of women being, you know, being equals with men lies in Jesus' teaching. But then Christendom and the institution of the church, because it wanted to control people, wanted to control their behaviors, wanted to exercise power over the masses, um, kind of went back to to old paradigms and, and created, went back to the old thing of, uh, you know, the power structures of male and female. So there's a difference between that <laughs> the Jesus 
teaching and what it started in the or in the Jesus movement and what happened in Christendom and the institution. Another one, so the Me Too movement, which is all about um, a woman having power over her, her own sexuality, her own body, to say, hey, you can't just treat me like just this body to have sex with. You can't just use that as leverage and empower over me. That's not right. And guess what? The very root of the whole idea of sex being something that was inherent to the person and that that the you need to respect the person is in St. Paul. It's Paul is the one who who began to teach the notion that no, this isn't this is more than just sex. This is more than just a body's um, you know, getting together and, and having sex. That there's a spiritual component to this, that that the person that you're having sex with is a spiritual person. That was that was Paul who came up with that. In the Roman Empire, men could basically penetrate, you know, anything. Any anyone or anything, as long as it wasn't owned by somebody else, and, you know, wasn't somebody else's wife and wasn't going to tick somebody else off. But a Roman man felt like it was perfectly within his rights to have sex with anybody, anything, male, female, animal, young, old, uh, and could do it at any time in any way that they please because they were that sex was a uh was something that they used for power and it was it was the jesus movement that changed that that said no 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 no, no. we need to <laughs> we need to understand that sex needs to be something that is spiritual uh yeah even though we're living in a time of exile And the thought is that Christianity is very much a thing of the past. The reality is that Christian thought is still very much at the root of of what we think and how we frame the world. So that's one thing. Uh, Also, I've had people kind of go, well, wait a minute. This is, um, it's kind of scary. The idea that we're, we're, you know, Christianity is losing its, hold or losing its power and influence in the world. This is a terrible thing. I'm not so sure. I had um, somebody ask me for some of my thoughts on this uh, just this last week. And uh, here's, here's how I responded to him. I think that institutional Christianity has failed. And what I mean by that is that mainstream uh, mainline denominations are imploding and falling apart and fracturing in a million different pieces. Uh, the, the institutional Christianity that we have known for 1,700 years is kind of waning. And I think it was destined to fall, just like the Mosaic law was destined to fail and to fall. Because... Um, because the institution could never provide what a, re- a living relationship with the eternal God on level one and the influence of that in my life and relationships on level two, that was the paradigm. And the institution trying to use power and control and rules and influence to control behavior down from level three down to two and one that wasn't the paradigm. 
The paradigm was Jesus coming from level four, changing the individual on level one that then changed how that person related to, to the, their family and friends and influence on level two, and then subversively then changed the way they related to everybody and everything on level three. And so it's just like absolutely the opposite. I think that our denominational institutions long ago abandoned this, the, the divine dance and the paradigm that Jesus uh, came to, to really instill in us. We, we embroiled ourselves in doctrinal and organizational and financial and systemic infighting. And so maybe the, the fall in, uh, of in, institutional Christianity and the failure of institutional Christianity is, is really a plot line in the great story that God's authoring. You know, I, I think that maybe this is what's supposed to happen. And maybe it's out of that that God's going to do some amazing things. You know, history appears to support the fact that Holy Spirit works most effectively and powerfully amidst suffering and persecution. The kingdom account, the kingdom of God uh, and the economy of God's kingdom is opposite of our world's economy. I think we may be moving towards a time of unprecedented uh, uh, spiritual awakening and revival, but it's only going to come after we've lost all of our level three standing and power in this world, I think that Christ will become more and more as we and our institutional Christianity become less and less. And it's hard because I think a lot of people kind of go to, oh, we're going to lose it and we're going to go uh, um, even say, oh, so what do you think? We're going to be persecuted and suffer. Well, number one, that's already happening around the world. Uh, just this last week, China has uh, just walked in and torn down two giant churches in China. Uh, in the middle of the worship service, the, the government just walked in, arrested everybody, tore these uh, churches and just brought in and began dismantling, just tore them to the ground, raised the, the church building to the ground. So it's happening in other places. Do I think it's going to happen here in the United States? I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure that that's the way that it's going to happen in, um, here in the Western world and in America. I think, I think we might suffer more in just being marginalized by our culture, by being dismissed uh, by popular culture and by the institutions, uh, level three institutions of this world. Uh, being discounted and ignored. Um, I think it might be the suffering of, of watching our deeply held beliefs getting zero consideration and watching all of the, the systems that were built on a Judeo-Christian worldview dismantled in the social justice revolution, rewriting uh, Jesus out of the historical narrative. I don't know. I, I wonder if this is all that's where it's going. But here's what I do know. I don't have to be afraid. I really don't because God is still authoring this great story. And if I, if I really believe what I say, I believe then I have to have faith that that's exactly what's happening, that God is still authoring the story and we're a part of it. And what is going to happen in in level four? He's got it all in control. So yeah, I just have to have faith that I'm just supposed to keep walking my own journey, a wayfaring stranger through this land and world of woe. And here's the thing. 
Life doesn't always look like we think it's going to look. It doesn't, really. Exile is part of the journey. Life didn't turn out for Abram the way he thought it was going to. Life didn't turn out for Joseph the way he thought it was going to. David spent years doubting because life didn't turn out uh, in a nice, clean, linear fashion the way he determined uh, and the way that he expected it to look like. So who are we to think that that uh, our lives and our journeys are going to be any different? Exile is part of the whole deal. And so, my friends, wherever you find yourself in your life journey, whether that be uh, safe at home in a good place, which I hope that's true, or maybe even in a bit of exile of some kind, I, I get it. It's part of the story. I hope that you are well and that you'll keep pressing on one step at a time. A uh, c- couple of quick announcements. I will be giving the message in the auditorium of Third Church in Pella, Iowa, uh, this Sunday. Uh, October 27th, and then also on November 10th, back in the auditorium there at Third Church. I got a couple of Sundays coming up in December as well. Of course, my messages could always be found on the Wayfarer blog, tomvanderwell.com, and uh, I've got messages posted there as well as if you click on the upcoming messages and appearances, uh, typically we'll have the dates that I'm teaching and where listed there. And so, my friend, let me leave you with this blessing. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. The rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of the same.